If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus today. Um, this is our Easter series, which I get, you know, doesn't exactly sound like an Easter series if you know anything about the story or maybe you've seen the movies. Um, but I believe that it is because the story of Exodus and specifically the part of that story that we're going to start today um, is the story of how, well, it's just the, it's, the, it's the touchstone. It's what the rest of scriptures go back to and point to when we talk about what God is like. It's, matter of fact, it's what God says. Here's how I want you to remember me. I want you to remember me, what I did for you in this moment that we're going to talk about today. Um, so just real quick to catch you up if you uh, haven't been here, uh, we're at the place in Exodus. God, Exodus is this, it follows Genesis, God makes everything and his people, uh, he creates his own people, people or his descendants of Abraham, right? There's this program and it's not really fully explained yet when you're just reading through Genesis, but he's got this way that he's going to save everything following the fall, like sin entering the world. And, and the way he's going to do it, which is really bizarre, even at the very beginning, when God first announces his program to Adam and Eve, uh, how he's going to fix everything, he says he's going to do it through the descendant of the woman, which is, I just, we should never get over how weird that is, right? Hey, you two that have just failed, Adam and Eve, you've just sinned, you've just rebelled against me, I'm going to fix the world, and here's how I'm going to do it, through one of your descendants. What? It's a crazy thing to do. Why would, there's got to be a better way than these two guys, right? But that's how he's going to do it. It's amazing. He, he, just, he refuses to let go of his plan to put humans in the place that he would have them to be. Unbelievable. So anyway, and it gets a little stranger later. He's like, not only am I going to do it through a descendant of Adam and Eve, of this woman, but it's going to be through a descendant of this guy named Abraham, right? And so uh, we hear the story of his, his descendants, and, and basically uh, they, God does what he promised, right? He, they, he becomes a, a many, many people, but they're not where they're supposed to be because he also promised him that they're going to be a blessing to the whole world. His descendants are going to bless the entire world. Everybody's going to be blessed through him. And then uh, um, they're supposed to have this land, Canaan, and they're not in the land. They actually, through a crazy set of circumstances, end up in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, everything's going great. Uh, it sounds like almost this, like, Exodus opens with this almost, like, Eden promise fulfillment that they've become, they've been fruitful and multiplied, you know, and God's blessed them in this amazing way, except for, you know, they're st- clearly outside of the garden because people are, people are dying and all this stuff's happening. Anyway, um, they become a, a great people and uh, the Pharaoh doesn't, the new Pharaoh, like it's been generations, doesn't remember um, what a blessing they've been. And so instead of blessing them, he decides to curse them. And what he says is, you know what, we'll make them slaves. Uh, And uh, God sends this this crazy set of circumstances that seems like the whole plan just hangs by a thread. Uh, God just says, listen, the way I'm going to rescue my people is through this guy, this failed revolutionary named Moses. And um, so he brings him back at, you know, about age 80 (laughs) to, uh, you know, the problem of his life, to to rescue the people, right? He sends him back. And so... um, he says, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to send plagues. Uh, and so last week we talked about how God, to talk, to convince Pharaoh to let his people go, he's going to send plagues. And so he sent all these plagues. The Nile turns to blood. Um, frogs come, gnats come, flies come. Uh, the death of the livestock happens. God sends hail to destroy what wasn't killed there. And what the hail doesn't crush in the fields, locusts come and take care of. And then finally, there's the ninth plague is this darkness falls across the land. <laughs> And then this week we're going to talk about the 10th plague. The 10th plague. Um, 
At this point, though, by the way, at the end of the ninth plague, before we get to the tenth plague, uh, I want to set the stage for what it would look like if you were there at the time. Because in all this stuff, right, we're like ten chapters in. God's in all this amazing stuff. Uh, but the situation, if you're an Israelite in slavery, has not changed. You're still a slave. Pharaoh still won't listen. Moses and Aaron, at this point, look like abject failures, right? So at the end of the ninth plague, that's where we are at. That's the starting place. So there's a lot that has to happen today. Uh, we're going to look at the tenth plague. It's the death of the oldest son. Oh, sorry, sorry, the uh, firstborn. The death of the firstborn. Uh, we need to talk about Passover, because that's in here as well. The tenth plague is really set apart from the rest. It's, it's different. And here is how it's going to happen. Um, there's an old joke, a church joke, so it's not a good one, because uh, church jokes aren't the best. Uh, but it's an old church joke. Uh, it, I've heard it in many forms. If you, just in case you didn't grow up in church, uh, let me fill you in on the, the joke. It goes something like this. Uh, the way that I heard it first, maybe, um, when I was a kid. Uh, so there's this woman who she's teaching Sunday school. And it's, she's talking about Adam and Eve, and so she's going to do an object lesson. So she begins class by taking an apple and placing it in a paper bag. And she begins to describe it to the kids in the room, right? Little kids in the room. She's like, look, if, what's in this bag? I want you to guess what's in this bag. And they start raising their hands immediately because that's what kids do, right? And she's like, no, no, let me give you some clues. She goes, it's round. Hands are just going up. It's, it's red, right? Uh, it, it, you can eat it, and it's, it's sweet, and it crunches, and it, it grows on a tree, and she begins to describe this apple to the kids. And they all have their hands up. She goes, who wants to guess what it is? And everybody has their hands up. And so she points at the kid, and one of the little, kid, little boys in the front row, and the little, little boy looks at her and goes, it sounds like you're describing an apple, but I know the answer is Jesus. Right? It's not a good joke, right? But... That happens. It happens. I work with kids on Wednesdays. I love it so much. And they do that. They do that. Like, you look like, hey, what's your favorite fruit? And hands go up everywhere. And they're like, God loves us? Like, they do that. Like, the two things happen when you work with kids. Like, I don't know how they learned it. I don't know what you guys are teaching them at home. But man, they come up with the Jesus answer right out of the gate. The other thing is, you think you have secrets, so you work with toddlers. There are no family secrets if you work with toddlers. Just so you guys know, right? Yeah. So that's what's going to happen. So today, today's sermon, if, if there ever was a sermon where you're like, huh, I wonder if the answer is Jesus. Yeah, the answer is Jesus. As we go through this, you're like, huh, that, that reminds me of something. What is it? The answer is Jesus, right? Like this whole section just, like if you know the Bible, if you grew up in church, this whole section, you're just like, well, that's Jesus. Well, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. I, I, that's it. And so that's what's going to happen today. The other thing that has to happen today Two other things have to happen today. One, I have to use an illustration that irks me. Uh, this guy named D.A. Carson used this illustration, and it's just one of those things that you're like, I try to come up with something better, and I can't, so I have to use his. Right? So I'm going to use D.A. Carson's illustration later. Uh, I have to do it, because it's just that good, and it makes me angry. That sounds like something I would have said, but he said it first and better, which makes me upset. So that's it. I use D.A. Carson's illustration. And the third thing is we're going to read a lot of scripture. I just need you to hear the story. This 10th plague is just like, the rest of them are like in like a couple chapters. Like some of them only get a few verses. This 10th plague is almost three full chapters. Now we're not going to, we're not going to read every single word, but we're going to read a lot because it's just like, we, 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 this is it, man. Like this is it. So we're going to read those things today. Let's start with Exodus and 11. Uh, mine is titled, uh, A Final Plague Threatened. 
Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, whenever all caps is Yahweh. The Lord said, Yahweh said to Moses, one plague more. I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterwards, he'll let you go from here. So on this one, like, okay, I'm, stop, I'm sorry. This, I do this all the time. I'm so sorry. So, so what happened is like, what's happening is this time God just, he goes ahead and tells you the outcome. Here's the outcome. This is it. It's done. It's over. After I do this, you're, you're going. So he tells him how this is going to, how this is going to turn out. Uh, one more plague I'll, I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After this, he, he's going to let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he's going to drive you away here completely. Not only is he going to let you go, he's going to kick you out. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man, uh, sorry, ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Not only are he's going to kick you out, they're going to give you stuff. That's how bad this is going to go. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I'll go into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. Not a dog will growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know. Here's the reason, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Let's stop there for a second. The 10th plague is horrible. It's horrible. It's awful. As a matter of fact, in some ways, one through nine are just leading up to the 10th plague. Uh, One through nine are basically warnings, right? In some way, um, in some sense, these plagues, um, the first nine were trying to stop the 10th one from having to come, right? In some way. So, so uh, this is just a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, and what's so interesting about this plague, there's many things that set this plague apart. One of them is uh, that it says that God is going to come himself. It says, so Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God is going to come himself. It's Jesus. So God's going to come himself. This is different than the other plagues. God sent these plagues. This time, he's going to show up himself. And what he's going to do, what he's coming to do, is he's going to bring judgment. He's coming to do the thing that he said he was going to do. Uh, Way back in Exodus 4, at the beginning of this whole thing, Moses is not even in Egypt yet. In 422, uh, uh, God said this to Moses. You shall say to Pharaoh, right, when you get there, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I'll kill your firstborn. God is coming to do what he said he was going to do from the very beginning. 
He's coming and he's bringing judgment on this Pharaoh who has killed babies, who has uh, enslaved an entire people, who has set himself up in opposition to God, who has opposed God in every way. And God is coming to do the exact thing that he said he would do. He's going to bring judgment. It is an exceedingly great comfort to me that the God of the Bible, the God that I worship, the God that we worship, does the exact thing that he says he's going to do. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead, the life everlasting, these are his promises. And he always does the thing that he says he's going to do. All along the way, from Exodus 4, which we talked about way back in February, until Exodus 12, all of these things that have happened in between, it's looked like nothing from like failure. Matter of fact, at one point, Moses goes to God and says, I don't understand. You've done nothing. And God's like, you just need to wait. Even when it looks like absolute failure, there's never any doubt that God is going to do what he's promised. He's going to make all things new. And this is a deep, deep comfort to me. It's a thing that I have to remind myself every single day. I get up in the morning, and as I go through the day, and as I slowly fail over and over and over again, as my heart begins to drift further and further from God, I just, just every day, the recognition that I have sinned in the things that I've done, and I've sinned in the things that I have not done, that my priorities and my loves just so easily get out of alignment to know at the end of the day, because there's a voice in my head that says, you haven't done enough, you'll never do enough, look at all that you have done. Um, or as a, I heard a song lyric one time that said, when I'm laying in bed, my brain wants to talk about all the things I'm not, and even worse, all the things I am. Yeah. And to that we get to speak the promises of a God who says you were saved not because of all the things that you are and not because of all the things that you're not and all the things you've done and all the things you've not done. You were saved because I have saved you. By faith you were saved. And I have to let that spirit preach to me, the Holy Spirit preach to me and preach to myself over and over and over again that Jesus Christ on the cross said it is finished. It's done. Your striving is ceased. I love you. You must stop this in your heart. And I have to preach that promise to myself over and over and over again. And I can because God is a God who does exactly what he says he's going to do. He's going to bring judgment. What he does is he brings judgment. But it's, it's really, really, luckily he brings judgment slowly. Right? There's nine plagues before this final Play. He has been very, very patient, but it also seems that God's word can't be rejected endlessly. Right? The thing that he says we can't just put off forever. And so he's going to come and he's going to bring judgment. Uh, one guy, some person wrote this, I don't know who it was, says, uh, If uh, you will not bow and worship to his word, you will bend the knee in judgment. Yeah, because God's will will be done. He is going to do what he set out to do. Uh, or there's a story in Matthew uh, that Matthew tells. Jesus tells this, this parable uh, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 21. He says it this way. He says, um, 
begins to tell this parable about uh, this, this uh, landowner who builds a, a wine press and a vineyard, and, uh, and he builds it all, and, and then he goes away into another, another land. Uh, and uh, when he's gone, uh, he pe- puts pe- tenants there to take care of it. And when it's time for the fruit season to draw near, he sends, a, he sends servants and says, hey, go to them. Uh, and so the tenants, uh, <laughs> the tenants take the servants, and they, they beat one of them, and they kill another, and they stone one. And uh, when the landowner finds out he, from the other country, he sends more servants. He's like, what? Like, no. And so he sends more, and they do the same to these servants. And finally, the, the, the landowner says this. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he'll do to those tenants? God brings judgment, yes, is a thing that we in our culture struggle with, although I would argue that it's a really, really uh, beautiful thing. It's a good thing that God brings judgment because there's things that need to be dealt with, right? Um, So God brings judgment, uh, but he seems to be a God who brings it slowly, but will not forever be dismissed. And so uh, finally it says he sent his son. Right? God is patient for so long and then he sends his son, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And here's another reason that I think it matters what we do and why I think judgment matters. First of all, I, let me say it this way um, I, I told you guys before, I, I've said before, I, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I tried. Right? I just don't have enough faith. It requires a certain level of faith to be an atheist, right? And, and, and I'm not doing this to be demeaning, but like, you have to believe a thing. You have to believe that the life that you're living doesn't matter at all. And that you'll be, you'll, you won't be judged for it one day. Right? Like, to be an atheist, you have to believe that what you're doing really has no long-term lasting impact on a geologic scale, that you're just going to die and nothing's going to happen. I just don't have enough faith to believe that. It seems to me uh, the best I can figure, not just through scripture, just through experience, that we believe, we humans believe that the lives that we live matter. There's a reason that that guilt and shame are a thing that exists in the world and we haven't yet figured out how to get rid of them. (laughs) Because we know in our bones that our lives matter. That what you do matters. That you matter. That you matter to a God that created all things. You matter and the life that you live matters. If there was no judgment, that's not true. In the story, what we're going to see happens, though, is God provides a way where there's judgment comes on the evil and the terrible power structures of the world that will not listen, but also somehow he finds a way to bring, to bring his judgment, but protect those. This is okay, we're going to keep going. All right, so, all right, so look, it, it matters. And here's the reason that this is the final plague. This isn't just the worst thing that God could think of. What's been going on all along is in this whole battle between Pharaoh and God, this power structures of the world and the eternal God, uh, is the whole thing that's been happening is um, it's, a, it's a battle over who the son of God's children will serve. Right? Pharaoh's like, they're going to serve me. And God's like, I think not. Right? It's the whole battle. The whole battle is, hey, these are my son. This is my child. This is, this is my firstborn. And you keep insisting they'll serve you. No, you'll let them go so they can serve me. That's what the battle is over, is who they will serve. 
and that God is going to break the bonds of these power structures of the world that... Look, here's the way the world power works, right? I think of, I talk about this all the time. It's just, there's this really, really weird geology, uh, genealogy, not geology, genealogy in uh, Genesis. It's just listing all these descendants after the fall, right? In this, uh, uh, in, in the line that we're not going to end up following uh, through the rest of the story. But there's, there's just like, this person was born and they had, they lived this many years and they died. They born, died, born, died, born, died, born, died, born, died, born, died. Lamech was born and he took two wives. And then there's a section about how he's just an arrogant jerk. <laughs> it's a little short verse. And then it goes back to the genealogy. I think about that all the time. Uh, Lamech took two lives. Why, why mention that? Why did Lamech take two lives? Because he could. That's how the power structures of the world work. They take because they could. Why did Pharaoh make them slaves? Because he could. That's how the power structures of the world work. Not only is God going to come and deal with that. Not only is he going to come and deal with the evil power structures of the world that enslave us. But he's going to come and set his children free, right? That's what the story of Exodus is. So here, here's my question, right? Here's my question. I thought Jesus was the only begotten Son of God, right? I mean, that's right. Didn't you, you? You've heard that before, right? In what sense is Israel God's son? So, you know, how you would have heard this, right? There's a bunch of different things going on, but for someone to be uh, their, their son, the, the firstborn, uh, you would have, there would have been a vocational tie, right? You would have done what your father did, right? As you grew up, what your, or what your mother did. You would, as you grew up, you would have done what your parents did because you, you weren't going off to college and coming back with like degree in like, I don't know, mechanical engineering. You were doing what you, if you're there, farmers, you were a farmer. They're a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith, Right? And so in some sense, there's this vocational tie that Israel is supposed to go into the world and be, be in the world what God would have them to be. There's actually going to be this moment where God calls the entire nation to be priests, to be representatives of him on earth. They're to both vocationally in how they live in the world, uh, be different, to be like God and represent him. Not only that, they're supposed to be in the world in a way that, re- that reflects God's glory and his character. Which is what you hope a child does. A firstborn does. Also, they're supposed to be the first of many. They're supposed to be the first of many. Uh, when God made the promise to Abraham, he didn't just say, hey, I'm going to make a nation, they're going to be awesome, they're going to rule all the other nations. He said, no, you're going to be a light to the other nations. The other nations are going to be drawn to you. You'll be the first of many. I'm going to spread this throughout, my blessing throughout the whole world through the descendants of you, Abraham. Unfortunately, as the story goes, it doesn't go great. Israel's uh, not great at um, following these things. Like, they're not good at doing, they don't reflect God's glory in the world. Like, the, the prophets keep coming over and over and over to them through the rest of the story of the Old Testament. What are you doing? I'm paraphrasing. What are you doing? Why aren't you doing the thing you're supposed to do? Why aren't you doing the thing that you're created for? Why, why can't you just worship God? Why do you keep. There's time when they say things like this, like, Who's ever heard of a nation that left its prophet? I left its gods. Like, but you guys keep leaving your gods. What's wrong with your God? What's wrong with you? And so they just don't do. They, they aren't the son that God called, the one that He inherited, the, the one that He adopted. So what He does instead is it's Jesus. He sends His 
only begotten son, the one that's in his name. They weren't like his nature. He sends Christ in his own nature, taking on flesh to die. They were his son in an adopted sense, in a sense that they're supposed to go into the world and be this way, the first among many nations. And every place they fail, Jesus succeeds. So you get to Matthew, right? And Matthew's just this master storyteller, and he's telling the story of Jesus. And if you grew up hearing this story, if you grew up knowing these scriptures, when you hear Matthew telling the story of what happened to Jesus, you're like, dude, you're talking about Israel. He says crazy, he tells us like these stories in this order, it's amazing. He's like, Jesus gets baptized, and then he goes out and spends 40 days in the, in, the de- in the desert where he's tempted. If you grew up, you're like, he's talking about Israel. And yeah, he is. And all of the places and all the ways that Israel and you and I fall short, this Jesus, this God, the one who is the only one that is like God in nature, God in flesh, he comes and just says, you know what? He's the greater Israel. And he stands in that place. That is the beauty of the story of what's going on here, that God sends this sacrifice. All right, so it's all going to happen. Moses is super mad. He's just said, told Pharaoh what's going to happen. He leaves, and then there's just the, uh, God tells him about a party they have to throw every year, which is you know, what you expected to come next. Chapter 12. Yahweh said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. If you're wondering how important this is, he resets their calendar. (laughs) Like, all right, now, you know June? No, it's January now. He resets their calendar. That's how big a deal this is. Months shall be for you, beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make, uh, you shall, uh, make, for, uh, make your count for the lamb. So you have to, you have to count. Like how big is the household? How much can each person, each person eat? We have, to, we, have, we have to make, it's got to be the right size. Well, we can't, there's only four of us. We can't eat a whole lamb. And like, what do we do? Like, we'll get together with other households that are small. So this community thing, you got to go out and you got to search for this lamb, right? It's got to be the right size. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Oh, not only does it have to be the right size, it's got to be perfect. Uh, it's Jesus. All right, so uh, um, blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly in the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you have to burn. And this is how you're supposed to eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you, destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You'll keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. 
You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's pretty serious. Like if you're wondering how serious this is, if you eat some sourdough bread during these seven days, you're kicked out of the country. That's how serious God is. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day, a holy assembly. No, one, no work shall be done on these days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you, by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought, you up out of, uh, brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day to the month of, uh, month of evening, you shall eat unleavened bread uh, until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person is to be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat Nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that it is in, in a basin. Touch it to the lintel of the two doorposts, uh, doorposts and the blood that is uh, in the basin. None of you shall go out of uh, the door of the house until morning, for the Lord will pass through the, to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintels and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land the Lord will give you, as he's promised you, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You'll say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. I think this is weird stuff. I think it's weird, right? It's wild. This is, this is like, it's yeah, wild, right? I mean, just like, I mean, picture in your head, right? Um, judgment's coming, right? And here's one of the things that's different about the plague. Uh, this plague, this judgment, this is going to come all throughout the land, right? Uh, the previous plagues, not all of them, but the last f- five or six, they, last six, They've only been in the part of the land that Egypt lives in. Matter of fact, in one of the plagues, the one that, where like all the livestock die, like the Pharaoh's like, dude, go check out and see if the Israelites' stuff is alive. And it was. Like it was like, he's like, it only happened in that part of the land. This one, God's coming through the whole part. He's bringing judgment everywhere. That's what's happening. God is bringing judgment. The whole kind of thrust of this is who's going to stand when God brings judgment? Anybody, like how do you stand before a holy and almighty God, right? And it wasn't because the the blood wasn't to mark where they were. God knew where they were, right? It it was something else going on. So this is just weird, weird stuff, right? So God's coming in judgment. What should we do? I mean, imagine the scene, right? Like I'm making this up, but like you got a kid, he's visiting from out of town. He runs up to one of the other kids and he bumps into him. He sees this lamb. He's got a good looking lamb. You guys got separated. What are you going to do with that lamb? Why is that lamb by itself? And you're like, well, like in a few days we have to kill it. Why? Because God's going to come in judgment against the land. He's like, so what what do you got to do? You should kill the lamb. Like that makes sense to them, right? Sacrifices are the thing the world made, made, made sense in the world, right? To them. So what do you got to do? It's like, oh, yeah, then we got to cook dinner. What? So God is going to come. Imagine this. Imagine this, right? 
So imagine my wife wakes me up in the middle of the night. This is a different story that didn't happen, not like the one that did. So he wakes me up, imagine this, right? My wife wakes me up in the middle of the night. Chris, 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 someone's trying to get in the house. I jump out of bed. And so the two of us go through the house, right? And we're like trying to find out who's trying to get in the house, right? It's a terrifying situation. As we cross through the kitchen, like I'm leading down, down in front of the kitchen, and all of a sudden I hear, see behind me just a light just glowing behind me, and I hear a little sound, like a little pop. And I'm like, ah, I've been shot, right? Like, yeah, that's what I would do. And I turn around, and I haven't been shot. I just, in the glow of the refrigerator, my wife's just there with a bag of M&Ms, just eating M&Ms. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, what? I wanted M&Ms. Which, by the way, is not that far-fetched of a scene, by the way. And I'm like, we're trying to figure out who's coming in the house. This is a terrifying situation. Who stops for a snack? And that's basically what this is. This is like, hey, God's coming. This terrifying angel's going to come, and he's gonna come, God's going to come through the land, and he's going to wipe out everybody, and we have to make bread. Not only that, so you're just going to sit down for a meal? No, we can't sit down. What? Yeah, we got to stand up. We gotta have the staff in our hand, and we can't even, we don't even have time to like, you know, because there's three ways to like make something float, right? Like in the kitchen, right? To make leaven, right? You can, t- you can use eggs, right? Mechanical, right? Uh, but you can't, you can't, uh, that's a different thing, like a souffle. You can use chemical leaveners, like, uh, I don't think they had those, baking soda, baking powder, they didn't have those things. I mean, I don't know, I'm not an archaeologist, but I don't think so. The other way is that you, the main way you do it is with like, with, with yeast. Right? You, you put it in there, you put, it's like magic. You put flour and water, and if you just take care of it, like this leaven grows, and you mix it in your stuff, and you have to knead it, and it takes all dang day to do it. Like you got to be there all day, every hour, so you got to go over there and fold it in the bowl and do all this kind of stuff to it. And God says, you ain't got time for that. Water, flour, salt, and a bowl. Throw it in the oven. You ain't got time for that. It's this rush. You eat it standing up. You have this meal. And, and here's, what's, here's what's amazing about this scene, right? In this terrifying scene, who sits down and eats a meal? People who shouldn't be afraid. That's who. You shouldn't be afraid. You just need to be ready. You don't need to be afraid. Eat. Be ready to move. I'm going to do a thing, and I'm going to call you out of this land. I'm going to get you kicked out of this land with a bunch of stuff in your pockets. That's what's happening. It's this weird scene where they prepare and they have to find this perfect lamb. Perfect because of God's dignity, right? But, and also perfect, and we don't have time to get into this, unfortunately. But only, which by the way, let me just side note, right? That's like a, that's like a lie that preachers say all the time, by the way. Well, I wish I had time to get into this. Liar. Uh, you, just, you just didn't prepare well enough. Uh, no, so, so we don't have time to get into this. So, so, but uh, it's perfect because uh, something perfect, uh, you need something perfect to bear the imperfections of another. Like something imperfect, can, I, can, I can bear the consequences for my sin, but who's going to bear the, who, it has to be something perfect to bear the consequences of my sin. It's Jesus. So they have to sacrifice, they shed the blood, they put it on the doorposts, and then they have this meal. Uh, it has to, the animal has to be killed and the blood put on the doorpost. Um, and then you have to burn up the rest of it, right? Um, this killing and then this, you know, judgment, you know? It's Jesus. It's just a weird situation. It's also weird, right, that God's coming to save you from slavery. Yay! But also, like, who can stand before the judgment of this God? What, what's going to make him pass over my house, you know? Um, I think that we can live with a lot of different priorities 
doing a lot of different things. Like it's easy for us to prioritize so many different things in our life, right? There's so many good things that deserve our attention. And, and, but when our priorities get out of whack, how about this? Let me say it this way. Uh, one of the ways that your priorities get in order real fast is that judgment is coming tonight, right? Like if judgment's coming tonight, you get your priorities, your priorities shift, yeah? And, and so God is coming, and how are we supposed to stand above this? One of the main themes of this chapter is that we cannot stand naked and unprotected before a God when he brings judgment. And so God brings judgment, but he provides a path. The God who's coming in wrath will pass over in peace. His judgment for their life will not be executed because of the blood of the Lamb. Something not to miss is that in every house in Egypt that night, something died. It was either a son, either firstborn or a lamb. Something that stood in the place of the other. At this point in the story, uh, Moses and Aaron have seen an abject failure. So I, I wonder, so you, you can't help but ask, like, what is it that saves them? Right? Because it happens, right? So it comes to the, uh, the end of this 43, verse 43 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, oh, no, wait, hold on, I jump back, Third, uh, 29, verse 29. At the midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the middle of the night, he and all of his servants and all of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, you, the people of Israel, go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. The Lord had given people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Been there 430 years. Looks like failure, and God passes the land. So here's this, um, what saves them, right? What saves them? Uh, so here's the Carson illustration. Carson said, D.A. Carson said, uh, told this in a sermon. It bothers me that he's a scholar, but also preaches a good sermon, right? I get it. Be a nerd. We're grateful for you, but don't be, also be a good preacher. Mm. Anyway, so D.A. Carson says this. He said, can you imagine that night, the day before that night is going to happen? There's two men standing around talking. And one of the men looks at the other guy and says, man, I am so scared. I am nervous. I just, and the other man looks at him and says, what are you scared about? And he goes, what do you mean what am I scared about? God is coming tonight in judgment. And the other man says, right, but did you put the blood over the door? And the man goes, yeah, I put the blood over the door, man, but it's still scary. And then Carson says this, which of these men and their households were saved that night? And the answer is, of course, both of them. Because it wasn't in the power of their faith, it was in the work of the blood. Right? It wasn't the depth of their faith, it was they had faith. It's the faith that saved them, the faith that God said... God said to do it, and they did it. They had seen God act nine times. And then when Moses said, go kill the lamb, make this meal, put the blood over the door, God is going to pass through the land. In faith, 
they were obedient. And God honored that faith and saved them, rescued them. This is the absolute truth for how we live. Look, I keep pointing to, talking about how this points to Jesus. This isn't just some kind of check, check marks for like, yep, all, Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. And that's fine and all, but you know, like, it was good enough for me when he raised from the dead, you know? I'm like, no, I'm good. I believe what he says is true. Like, you don't have to give me 900 check marks, like 899 wasn't a little thing. No, he rose from the dead, like I believe. And it's good. I'm not saying that's not good that we, we see that Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. I'm just saying that, that, it, that maybe also one of the things that we're supposed to get is not that Jesus, just checking boxes for fulfillment, but also that something that happened in what Christ has done for us, we're supposed to learn about from this moment. That God is coming in judgment. We will give an account for the lives that we have lived. And God will come for judgment for all. And what he has done, it's good that he's coming. And it's good that he's going to judge because there is evil in the world. The problem is there's also evil in me. What is he going to do about it? Like, how do I avoid being destroyed? And it's in this beautiful picture we see that for some reason, God has allowed the death of a perfect one to count as my death that I'm owed that I owe. That's it. We're supposed to learn so much about this from this season. So then I, we're done. We don't have time to read anymore. See, I did it twice. Uh, we don't have, uh, they go out in the land and God says, Look, you're going to do this forever. When you get to the land that you're going to, which is going to be 40 years later, you have to set this up. You have to do all these things. The firstborn's mine forever. All of these things you have to remember. There's all of this. In the middle of this play, God stops and sets up an annual feast that they're supposed to have. Why? Because you and I forget. We're forgetters. We just forget. We just forget. It's how we are. It's not just these people in this book. It's you and me too. We forget. Look, I, I, I don't, we don't encourage you to read your Bible every day and to pray and to come on Wednesday nights and to come on Sundays. We don't encourage you to do these things because any, any one of them will get you into heaven. As a matter of fact, if you did all of them, none of them would get you in heaven. It's just that that's how you respond when you have faith. Right? When you have faith in this God who has done these things and you see the beauty of that, you're like, you know what? I need to be reminded of that pretty regularly. The Passover was a once-time thing, right? God passed over their houses in Egypt one time. The meal that was set up as an annual festival was to remind them of that one time. We're about to come to the table. The Bread and the wine, the new covenant, this new thing. And it's, it's a remembrance. It's to remind us that this once and for all thing happened. That Jesus died that we might have life. That God passes over our sins. That we can live lives in the light of the hope that we have in Jesus. That we do not have to believe the lie any longer. That he will never accept us. Because he has accepted us not because of what we've done. Not, but, not in, but in spite of what we've done. In spite of what's been that we, we've not done, he accepts us because of the blood of the lamb that stood in our place. This is scripture. It's really the same thing we say over and over and over again every single week. This is what your sin cost. It's also how deeply loved you are. It's the constant reminder and the constant corrective. When you just feel so beaten down by your sin, I'll never ever be enough. It's the constant reminder, of course you won't be enough, but Jesus is. And by faith being joined to him, we can have life and hope and joy. Sometimes we're on top of the world. The, the cross and the death of Christ reminds us, hey, 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 you're nothing without him. You are a sinful sinner in, deserve, in full deserving of a death. 
but Christ has substituted himself for us. This is the beautiful story. And it plays out and it fills out in so many ways in scripture. And it's just this beautiful beginning that points out to what is God like? He's a God who's going to deal with evil and he's going to judge it. And he's a God who will provide a way for his people if we will have faith in him. This is how we live. We're people of faith. We are Easter people living in an Advent world. Just living in between the two arrivals of Jesus, waiting for him to come back, living out of the faith that we have in him. This is how we have life. And it's not the depth of your faith. Sometimes my faith, faith feels so thin. It is it's the power of Christ. Sometimes I think that it's how, you know, what is it? The, the old saying is how tightly I, I worry about how tightly I hold on to Christ. And it's not how tightly that we hold on to Christ that matters. It's how tightly he holds on to us. That's much more powerful. We live by faith. We are a people of faith. So as we come to the table, this is a remembrance for the people of God that this once and for all sacrifice was offered to us as a way for us in an experiential act to remember that we are people by the body broken and the blood spilled who have great hope and life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Help us. We live in the presence of enemies, right? Death and sin. But you guide us through these things. You are a guide. And it is by faith but we are a forgetful people, right? I forget that you have done it. I forget that you have made me whole. And I forget sometimes what a, what a sinner I am. That I am in need of salvation. And I seek fulfillment and meaning and purpose in all of these different ways, in all of these different places. You have provided for us in Jesus. May we see the glory and the beauty of his work. May we see the glory and beauty of his character. May we just be overwhelmed by the goodness and the love, the mercy and the grace and the good judgment of a God who has pursued us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.